Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Calvary. My name is Ryan. I'm the senior pastor here. Super excited to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2? I wanted to greet those watching online as well. Good morning if you're joining with us online. Grateful that we have the technology to to broadcast um, our services this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you get there, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17 if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You may be seated. I want to start off this morning by talking about a paradox. A paradox is a statement that seems like it's contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet perhaps it is true. You know, someone might say, maybe you've said this before, you save money by spending money. I'm married. I've heard that many times. <laughs> Some of you spouses, I'm not going to say which one. Like You're like, see, honey, like I told you, right? We save money by spending money. Like, wait, that doesn't seem right. Someone might say, the more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. What? Others have said, this is the beginning of the end. (laughs) Those are paradoxical statements. And that's what we get in 2 Corinthians. We get a paradox for the theme of this book. Remember, the theme is God's power being made perfect in our weakness. And that might seem crazy to you. Like, what? Power and weakness, they might seem opposite. Like, how can one be made through the other? It might even seem contradictory, but even our passage today shows us this idea. Shows us this seemingly contradictory idea of embracing weakness so that we can experience God's power and God's strength. Our text today once again reveals this paradox between power and and, and, and weakness. And Paul communicates it today by using three powerful images. And then out of those three images, we're going to look at practical lessons for our own lives. And so the first image, if you're taking notes, is one of an open door. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me once again. Paul says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. 
Not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So as we've been going through 2 Corinthians, you might remember that Paul is defending himself because the, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, was attacking him and his character because he had to change his travel plans, right? And they didn't like that at all. And Paul has talked quite a bit about his itinerary. He's talked about how his travel plans didn't work out the way that he expected it. But remember, he also recognized that God is sovereign. Like God is sovereign over all and he is faithful in the midst of everything. And so here in, in verses 12 and 13, Paul's talking about his current situation, what's happened. As you might remember, Paul had written a, a letter of tears to the church of Corinth. Corinth was a growing community in this ancient city. The church was young, but it had experienced growth in the church. But with that growth, they also experienced problems. And that's why he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians, to address those pro problems. But the church didn't repent when they read that letter. And so we're told that he visits them. He has this painful visit. And, he, and then he writes them this letter of tears that we don't have. He calls it a letter of tears that he wrote with affliction or ang anguish and affliction in heart. And he sends that letter, that letter of tears, to them through his brother Titus. Titus is not his biological brother, it's his brother in Christ. And Titus then delivers this letter and Paul is just anxiously awaiting to see how is the church, how are like my, my spiritual children going to respond to this letter? And Paul was planning to meet Titus in Troas to, to get an update from him, but Titus didn't end up showing up. And so Paul was worried, and he says here, I had no rest in my spirit. And so he goes on from Troas to Macedonia so that he could find Titus to get this like, much-awaited update on the church in Corinth. But what I want you to notice here in verse 12 is that Paul says that a door was opened for me in the Lord. In other words, God opened a door for him to preach the gospel in Troas. Now, you might assume that just because God opened the door for Paul, that everything would just be amazing, right? Like, like everything would go well. Maybe it was even easy for him. I mean, if God opens the door, then you know you're going to be successful, right? Like that's what we long for. We, we long in our lives for God. God, would you open the door? Would you show us your will? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? But then Paul says, look at verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. So here's the lesson I believe that we can learn from this is that an open door doesn't always mean an easy road. You see, we might assume that if God's in it, it's just going to naturally work out well, right? If God's behind it, like we know where it's going to go, there's going to be success. If you've got the power of God working with you, then, then why would it even be difficult? But that's not how life normally works. In fact, when God opens a door, in my life, it's oftentimes open to a difficult path. It's a difficult path. And this is true for the Apostle Paul. God had opened many doors for him throughout his ministry. And yet Paul suffered constantly and consistently. You think of the, the, the early church in the book of Acts. God is constantly opening doors of ministry left and right for the disciples. And yet they're walking through those doors onto some very difficult paths. 
You think of Jesus and what he said in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So an open door doesn't always mean that it's an easy road. But the good news, and this is the the wonderful thing about, about our Lord, is that God is with us through it all. He's with us through it all. You know, I was thinking about so many just stories in my own life this week about how God has opened doors. And um, I remember this about 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, the Lord opened up a door for me to go on staff at a church up in Vancouver, Washington. And this is a church that I actually grew up in as a young boy. And um, I didn't um, really ask for it. I wasn't looking to go on staff at this church. I didn't apply for it. I didn't do any of that. Um, It was just kind of a random kind of set of of circumstances where I got a call one day. And they're like, hey, would you want to come have coffee? And And God was just opening the doors. And, and so I left the church here, and I, and I went up there for, for two years on staff. And, um, but our season in Vancouver was super hard. Like, God opened those doors for us clearly. Like, I have no regrets looking back. It was one of the, the hardest seasons of our lives, but also one of the sweetest seasons. So does that mean that God wasn't in it because it was hard? Like I remember, there was a lot of friction, man. We had a small staff. We replanted a church. We took it from the suburbs. We replanted it into like the downtown Vancouver area, which you never do that. Like we, like I learned a lot about like what not to do, and like, um, but like, does that mean that God wasn't in it? Again, just because God has opened doors in my life doesn't mean that it's going to always be easy. God has opened the doors for me to pastor this church and, and lead this church. Doesn't mean it's always going e- to be easy. Even for many of you, though, God might be right now, this week or last week, opening doors for you in your life, but it might be difficult. It might be difficult. And you start questioning, like, wait, d- did God really open that door? <laughs> like, or is this me? Is this my flesh? Like, or maybe you're, you're thinking, like, should I even have walked through that door? <laughs> Like, you know, you, start, you just start overanalyzing. But what I want us to remember this morning is just because it's difficult doesn't mean that God's not in it. Okay, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that God's not in it. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, how he ended the letter. He says, for a wide door for effective work, effective ministry has opened to me. Wow, that's amazing. Stop right there. But then he says what? But there's many adversaries. And so again, just because God's in it, just because God might be leading you, which is amazing, doesn't mean that our journey is always going to be easy. And the call for all of us is to stay the course. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Expect opposition in your life. Anytime we're serving the Lord, anytime anytime we're going all in with Jesus and and wanting to be faithful to the, the calling that he's placed on all of our lives, we ought to expect opposition expect it to be difficult, expect it to be sacrificial. I was listening to a podcast today from, or, or earlier this week about, uh, it was two pastors, they actually both transitioned out of their churches, handed it off, and um, he was sharing, one of the pastors was sharing, like, man, why, why am I getting so tired? He pastored a church here in Portland for over 20 years and retired, and, um, and he was just, he was sharing, he's like, like we, we, we think we're, like, as pastors, like, 
maybe like we're broken in a special way. Like, why are we so exhausted? Why are we so just tired, like just going through the ministry? And what he was, his perspective in, this, like, in that was like, hey, you should expect this because not only are you preaching every week to the church and not every week to like just yourself, but like you are preaching to principalities and powers, like evil, like Forces of wickedness like are listening and they're, they're here and they're out to like attack me and attack us. And so no doubt we're tired because, man, this is a spiritual battle that we're in. Spiritual battle. So when we're following Jesus, like we are to expect to, 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 for it to be difficult. Expect it to be sacrificial. That's what God calls us to. So God opens doors, but he also, church, guides us down the path when it's difficult. And I love that. He doesn't just leave us like, okay, go through door number three. See you later. No, God, it's like, I am with you through it all. And so that, that's the first image that we see here of an open door, but not an easy path. The second image that Paul uses in our text is that of triumph, a triumphal procession. If you look at verse 14 once again with me. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, let me explain the background real quick of this idea of a triumph of that Paul is using. Or some of your translations might actually call it a triumphal procession. Because without understanding what it means uh, here and what it meant to them, we're going to miss that. But a, a triumphal procession was something that was common in Rome in the first century. When they would go out and conquer a surrounding nation, they would come back and throw a huge party. It was like a victory parade. You know, you think about like when a sports team wins the championship. I know we're in Portland. We don't really understand that like much. Like it's been a while, but like you look at New York or LA or, you know, other places that actually, never mind. Uh, but what, what happens? Like, you know, like when we watch like the Patriots, you know, year after year after year win the Super Bowl, you're like, oh, I'm so tired of it. They would go back to New England, right? Right? And they would throw a victory parade in their city, and the city would come together, and it would be mass chaos, but really fun. And that's the idea. Rome would go out and conquer another nation, and then they would come back and have this victory parade through the city, and they would have the general who would be out in front of this parade, leading this triumphal procession, and it would all be for the honor and the praise of the general. They would also have people carrying incense throughout this parade. And so you have wonderful smells going on throughout the city. And the crowds, again, would just gather by the thousands, lining the streets. And they would all cheer and would shout in honor of the general. And then what they would do is they would take many who were defeated and they would make them their captives, and they would bring them a part of this parade, this, this triumphal procession, and they would lead them at the tail end. And it was to their captives' shame. They were the defeated, right? They were the enemy, and they would walk through the city. And, and as the praise and honor was going on for the general, at the same time, they would be mocking their enemies that were defeated, and so Paul says here in 2 Corinthians that God leads 
us in triumph in Christ. Now, you might hear that and, and think, man, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like, like, we're going to triumph over our enemies. Like, I love this passage, right? But wait, <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> what Paul is actually saying, he says, we are led in triumph in Christ. What Paul is actually saying is, we are the captives being led through the city on this victory parade where the general is being praised and we're the ones who have actually been defeated and held captive. So why would he say that? What's going on? Like why would Paul identify himself and us with those who were defeated like in a Roman triumphal process? Here's why. Because true freedom is found through captivity to Christ. And I say that one more time. True freedom is found through captivity to Christ. You see, it's all about perspective. The world might look at you as a follower of Jesus and they might see weakness in you. They might see captivity in you. They might see like, man, you are just in bondage to another thing, right? Like you're just of no fun, right? But God sees us and looks at us and he sees strength and he sees freedom. And here's the reality this morning is that every single one of us are ruled by something in our lives. Every single one of us. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, like you still have a ruler over your life. But every ruler other than Christ is a harsh ruler. A harsh ruler. Listen, if your work, if you're all about your work, and if that rules your life, then you will always, always be a slave to productivity and you will eventually burn out. Right? If your if your ruler, right, is 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 image or status, right? Like you're you're gonna be a slave to the opinions of men, to the opinions of women, and ultimately you will be destroyed by them. Listen, only Jesus rules with peace and love and mercy and grace and patience and kindness. And only under his rule can we experience true freedom. Amen? So again, from one perspective, and they're captives, but from another perspective, they are experiencing, and we as followers of Jesus are experiencing true freedom by a great king. Now, when it comes to this idea of freedom through captivity, I think Paul in Romans chapter 6 lays it out really clear. He says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so the Bible actually changes our modern notion of freedom. And this is super important for us because as we talk about freedom in our society, as Americans, we know a little bit about freedom. But what, when we talk about freedom, we're, we're normally referring to being able to do whatever we want to do, right? That's how we think of freedom. To us, freedom is completely like the absence of any constraint. No authority over me. Nobody telling me what to do. Freedom means that I can do what I want, when I want it, how I want to do it. But that flies in the face of what we find throughout the scriptures. And honestly, the Bible tells us, if we want to be really honest, that the absence of restraints and constraints doesn't lead to more freedom. It actually leads to deeper bondage. 
That's the reality. One pastor put it this way. He said this, freedom is not the absence of constraints, but finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. Now, what, what does he mean by our nature? What he means is that you and I were created, we're made for a purpose. And we, with that, we have to live, we, we have limits, right? And, we, and constraints that we have to live within in order to flourish and to find freedom. And so you think about like a fish. Okay, I'm not a fisherman, right? But I, I know something about fish. If a fish, want, you know, wants to think like, hey, like I, wanna, I just want freedom, man. Like I'm just sick and tired of just the everyday life. And for me to get free as a fish, like I've got to get out of this water, like anyone seen like uh, Finding Nemo or something like that? Like that's kind of what I'm picturing right now. Like I gotta get out of this water and I gotta get up to land. That's how I'm gonna experience freedom. But if the fish does just that, jumps out of the water, free willy style, right? And he lands on, 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 the, on the land, th- that fish would not experience freedom. That fish will experience death. Why? Because they're made for water. They were created to live in the water. That's a constraint that they have to truly experience, like the freedom, right? As a fish, they have to live under that. So too, as followers of Jesus, we are made to live for the glory of God. Not not for your own glory, not for your own plans. We were made to live for the glory of God. And if we try to find freedom in anything other than that, we won't find spiritual freedom. We're going to find spiritual death and bondage. And so it's about finding the right constraints. I think of my daughter. My daughter is learning how to play guitar naturally gifted in a lot of ways, and music's one of them. And so I'm teaching her guitar, and she's picking it up really well. But as I'm teaching her, and and, and, and as she's learning, she can't just say to me, well, she could, because she's kind of sassy like that, but she can't just say, like, like, Dad, I'm just going to play whatever chords I want to play, right, when I want to play them. And if she starts playing in the key of G, right, it's a very standard key that we start teaching our kids guitar. And then all of a sudden, like, she plays, like, this B flat, like, in the midst, or, like, this F sharp minor in the key of G. It's not going to sound beautiful. Some of you jazz musicians might be like, ah, actually, that's really lovely. Like, no, like, um, it's going to sound horrible. But if my daughter wants to learn how to, like, be free on the guitar and have freedom as a player, she has to learn, well, what are the different keys, Right? Like, what are the different notes that make up the keys? Like, what's the relative minor in that key? And so as she just embraces those boundaries, as she embraces those restrictions, if you want to call them that, then and only then can she just experience freedom as a guitar player. That make sense? And so it is for us. Freedom is not in the absence of constraints, but in finding the right ones. And so it's in Christ alone that we find true freedom. His commands are boundaries for us for spiritual health, for growth, for life. So again, once again, true freedom is found through captivity to Christ. Amen? Side note, I also think that Paul is using this idea of freedom through captivity to Christ to kind of subvert a triumphalist mindset in Corinth. Because when we started the book of of 1 and 2 Corinthians, I mentioned some things about the city of Corinth and how they were very influential. Uh, They were more influential even than Athens and just this growing city, a young city. It was a city that was defined by honor. It was a city that was defined by status and by winning. 
And so this triumphalist temptation in Corinth, you know, when people would get saved and they would come into the church and became followers of Jesus, they were tempted to possibly take that same approach to their newfound faith. Like, we're going to win for Christ. Like, we're going to be impressive for Christ. But Paul continually is using anti-triumphalist language throughout this letter to undermine that mentality. Why? Because he calls them servants. That doesn't seem like winning. <laughs> right? He calls them to embrace weakness as a, as a follower of Jesus, to, to lay down their lives. He's calling the, them and us, ultimately, to be people of the cross. People of the cross. Now, I think in America today, there's a lot of similarities in ancient Corinth. Like we too, we care a lot about status and winning and honor and being impressive. And even in the American church, there's a temptation to overvalue those things. And we, can have, we have to fight against this triumphal mindset towards Christianity where we just associate maybe God's favor with like worldly success. Like there's this temptation to have this attitude of superiority and says like, well, as Christians, like we've, we've arrived, like we're amazing. Everyone else is lame and just sinners and dirty. And like we have this puffy arrogance about our, our newfound faith. Like we're going to win. We're going to defeat the world. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to win. But listen, God calls us over and over again to be servants to lay down our lives for those around us, to fight with weapons of faith and righteousness, to embrace weakness so that we can be strengthened by him. Because that's what we want. We want to be strengthened by the Lord. And so we have these images that Paul is, is communicating, an open door and this triumphal procession. And that leads us this morning to the third image, which is a pleasing aroma. Look at verse 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, the idea here is that we are this fragrance of Christ. Now, this is incredible. I've spent way too much time thinking about this this week. But if you think about the way that smell works, fragrance, a smell and a fragrance is different from the thing itself, right? But it reminds you of the thing itself by pointing you to it. So you like, I liken it to this. This is my analogy for this. Is big going to the mall, the Clackamas Town Center, and uh, for various reasons, but just going there every time I'm there. I go like, I walk maybe upstairs, wherever it's at, and I go like this. I smell something. I smell a, a buttery pretzel. <laughs> Smells good. Like, I don't see Auntie Anne's, like, right? Like, like pretzels around, but what, what am I smelling? Like, oh, man, smell is powerful, right? Like, the fragrance just kind of draws you in. I kid you not, every time I'm at the mall and I smell Auntie Anne's, like, pretzels, I want one, right? Like, I want it. I don't even see it, <laughs> but I want it. <laughs> and that's what Paul's point here is this, but way more significant. We, <laughs> as believers, as followers of Jesus, we're the fragrance of Christ, in verse 14, notice that he was talking about this aroma of the, the triumphal procession, right? So that was part of it. During the, the triumphal procession, people would have incense and, and there would be a smell that would go along with this victory parade. But here in verse 15, he actually shifts his language from aroma to fragrance. And, and some translations like fragrance to aroma, but they're different words in the Greek. And that word though here would have been associated with sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you would have a burnt offering. 
And it's this sacrifice to the Lord. And you might have a lamb or bread or some oil. Essentially, you're bringing like a meal. And you can imagine like the smell just going up and the Lord over and over again in the Old Testament calls it a pleasing aroma to him. The sacrifice. God was pleased with their sacrifice of worship. And what Paul is saying here is that we are this fragrance of Christ. Now, he says these two words. I don't want you to miss it. He says, we are the fragrance of Christ to God. What? Like, he's going to talk about other people, how we're the fragrance of Christ, and we're going to get to that. But first, we are the fragrance of Christ to God. And I think this is incredible. Because what this means is that God is pleased with you in Christ. Like, a pleasing fragrance. Can I just say this so that's very clear, again, that you and I, we are the fragrance of of Christ, and it, church, is a pleasing fragrance to God. Church, God is pleased with you. Can I just say that? That God is pleased with you, I want you to hear me with this, the same way that he is pleased with his son. And you think about it for a second, how is the father pleased with the son? How, how does the father view the son, Jesus? He delights in him, Right? The Father loves the Son. The Father knows the Son. The Father's pleased with the Son. And listen, church, the same way, that's how God views you. (laughs) He delights in you. God loves you. He sees you. He knows you. And I know this is hard for some of us to receive. And I want to ask you this question as we're, we're talking about how God views us. Can I just ask you, you don't have to answer it out loud, but how do you think God feels about you? How do you think... God feels about you. Now, I'm not saying answer that right now with like, oh, God loves me, like with that Bible like answer real quick. Like, oh, God loves me, God, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how do you really think that God feels about you? Most believers that I know, they struggle with thinking that God is disappointed with them. God's frustrated with them. They think that God, God, God looks at them as, as just disgusted and just annoyed and just bothered by them. And just they're, they're maybe, maybe they're just struggling in sin and God's just tired of them. But what this passage declares is that God is pleased with you. God is pleased with me in Christ. So he's pleased with you, not because of how great you are, but because of your faith in his son, Jesus. And we have been given the righteousness of Christ, and we are now the fragrance of Christ to God. Amen? Think about this. In, in, the, book of, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, right? And at, and at the point when Jesus comes out of the water, there's this sudden, like, a voice that is heard from heaven declaring over Jesus the Son. And it's God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And listen, the same applies for us. Because you and I are in Christ, this means that when God looks at you, When God looks at you and looks at me, he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. That's good news. And that has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
Church, once again, this is how God views you in Christ. God is not looking at you just like with folded hands and just kind of that frustrated God, like just, man, guys, get it together. Like, I died on the cross for your sins so you don't have to walk in it anymore and blah, 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 you know? Like, no, God is looking at you with compassion, with joy. Like, get that. God is looking at you with joy, not when you're not walking in sin at all times. In the midst of your sin, yes, it breaks his heart, but you're forgiven. Your faith is in Jesus. So he's singing over you, Zephaniah says. He's exulting over you. He can't contain his joy when he looks at you. This is mind-blowing. Again, not because of what you've done or I've done for God, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. He took our sins to the cross, and it was out of his love for us that he did that. That's how God feels about you. But Paul doesn't just stop with being a fragrance of Christ to God. He goes on to say, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so this idea of being the fragrance of Christ means that we're representing Christ to those around us. In other words, like people are basing their opinion on who Jesus is from what they're smelling in us. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just like, <laughs> I'm a little sweaty this morning, okay? It's a little warm in here. But you, you think of it like this. What do people in Clackamas County think about Jesus? What do people around us think? Like, Paul is saying that their thoughts on Jesus has a lot to do with what they see in his followers, so we have to acknowledge that, that, that that's where a lot of people get their view of Jesus is by his followers. Pastor Kevin always says that, like, we're Jesus with skin on, right? And he's not wrong with that. And so a lot of people have rejected Christ throughout the years because of the actions bearing the name of Christ. And so what we're being told here in 2 Corinthians is that we're called, church, to be the fragrance of Christ. We're called to represent Christ in all that we say and do. Everything we say and do, how we conduct our lives, the, the hobbies that we're, we're about, like that's how we're, we're ought to live is to represent Christ. Some of us, like we like to represent political parties, right, or, or movements. We're called to represent Jesus as number one. And so in verse 14, Paul says that it's through us that God spreads his sweet aroma. It's incredible. Like God chooses to show how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, how good he smells, how pleasing his fragrance is through the church. And Paul says that we spread the knowledge of God in every place by the way that we live our lives and the, by the things that we say that we're telling others. Like, hey guys, like you can know Jesus. Like, you don't just have to know about him, like, intellectually. Like, you can know and have a personal relationship with God. You can be reconciled with your creator. You can know the king of all creation. And we're called, again, to represent Christ in word and in deed. And so I ask myself this, and I am asking you, how will people in Milwaukee and Gladstone and Oregon City and Clackamas and Happy Valley and Portland know that God is compassionate by the compassion of his people. Like how will people know in our area that God is loving by the love that is given through his people? How will people know that God is gracious by the grace that is extended from his people? How will, God, how will people know that God is holy by the holiness of his people? 
We represent Christ by proclaiming the gospel and living our way, lives in ways that just follow Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. That's what our lives are to be about. But here's the paradox. Because the same gospel is a fragrance of life to some, Paul says, and a fragrance of death to others. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, to the one, an aroma of from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And so what this means is that two people can hear the same thing, and to one it's foolishness, and to the other it's wisdom. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so it's interesting that you can go out and live your life like in gospel mission and just proclaim the gospel. Or I can stand up here on a Sunday morning with a, with a, with a room this size and I can proclaim the gospel and declare the amazing truth that, that God loves you. That, that if you repent of your sin, you can have eternal life. That he forgives you and he has a plan and a purpose for you. And the interesting thing is, is one might hear that and say yes. Like, I want that. Like, I want to give my life to Jesus. But then someone else hears that and says, nope. Nope, I'm not ready. Not yet. I'm not convinced. Same message. Same words. Different response. But the gospel this morning really calls all the time for an all or nothing response. When the gospel is rightly proclaimed and you hear it proclaimed, you can't just say, meh, like, right? Like, like, you can't do that. Like, you can't, like, not decide. It's either, you know, how dare you call me a sinner? <laughs> I don't need a savior. Like, I, Jesus isn't my savior. He's dead. Like, he doesn't, he's not alive. Or it's either that or it's, man, I deserve nothing. But I've been given everything by the grace of Jesus. It's amazing. Like, hallelujah, Right? And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 16, he says, and who is adequate for these things? That's a rhetorical question here. You're not supposed to answer it and say, like, I am. He says, who, who is adequate to be an aroma of life or death to other people? He says, no one but God. No one but God. He's calling us to embrace as a church our insufficiency in this. Why? So that we can experience the sufficiency of God's grace in Christ. He goes on in verse 17 and he says, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So he's saying we proclaim Christ. Like that's what we do as followers of Jesus. That's what we do as a church. But notice that he uses this word peddling. He says we're not like many peddling the word of God. That verb that's used here for peddlers was actually used by wine sellers. Wine sellers who would water down the pure wine just to make a quick profit. So think about that. People, there are people out there trying to water down the gospel message, the purity of the gospel message so that it can just draw more people, right? So that more people would be drawn to it. You'd start taking the, the edges off of the gospel, right? Like, ah, like, let's not talk about like, that sin, right? You, yet you start like, not reconciling like, what the Bible says versus what we see in culture. Like, let's not talk about like, sexuality and things that are controversial. Let's just water down the purity of the gospel so that maybe more people will sign up for it. And we'll feel better about ourselves. Listen, the problem to that is this, that that just leads to surface level people claiming the name of Christ and yet still being in bondage to their sin. 
still being in bondage to their sin because God did not send Jesus to comfort you in your sin. God sent Jesus to save you out of your sin and to give you a new life, not to comfort you in the old life. So church, we're called to represent Christ and to do it boldly. Our, our job is to proclaim Christ to proclaim his word with integrity, with sincerity, but we also at the same time have to acknowledge that we don't have the power to change the human heart. Like it's not on me. Like I can't change someone's heart. Only God can do that. And so to some, the message is this wonderful fragrance of life. And Paul says to the others, it's like the stench of death. Like this, I'm just repulsed by it. And guess what? Our job as followers of Jesus is just to simply share it. Share the message. Share the powerful message of the gospel that has the ability to change lives. God has called you and I and has sent us to be his representatives. Where you work, in your neighborhood, at your job, just think about your neighbors. Like, Do your neighbors even know that you're a follower of Jesus? Maybe the fish on the car, the bumper sticker that we gave you, you know, maybe. They're like, oh, I think they're a Jesus follower, you know. How about in your workplace? Man, would we proclaim, would, be the, would we be the fragrance of Christ so that people would be drawn to him? Would we be just a wonderful, that Auntie Anne's fragrance? Like, right, that fragrance that just, oh, I want that. Some of you, you're, you're putting out other fragrances that aren't of Jesus, and the, and the world is being repulsed by it. Would we truly represent Jesus? And, and this is the beautiful thing. This is the liberating part. We don't have to manufacture that fragrance. We just have to simply just be a conduit of it. So a lot of this is just internal where we say, God, would you work in me? God, would you change me? So that I would start just letting off like a fragrance of Jesus. And so Paul, again, he lays out these three different images for us. And we see three different lessons. They're all paradoxical. And I started out by talking about how a paradox is, is a statement that seems contradictory, right? It seems like opposed to common sense, but yet perhaps it's true. And that's strength and weakness. It's a paradox. It sounds kind of crazy. And when Paul says in this book, like, I'm weak, right, and then I'm strong, so you might hear that and make, that makes no sense. Like, what are you talking about? But the paradox of strength through weakness only makes sense through the logic of grace. That's the key. Grace is the key. This is where we see the paradox. It, it doesn't just seem to be true. It's actually true. And here's where we have to understand grace. Because when you and I were stuck in our sins, after you and I had messed everything up in our own lives, maybe even in the, the lives of others, God responded to our mess by sending his son for us by grace. Out of grace. He didn't have to do it. God didn't look at us and say, man, those people are kind of impressive. Like, I guess I'll do it for them, right? No. Like, while we were still sinners, the Bible says, God sent his son for us out of love, out of mercy, out of grace. Why? This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel because we couldn't do it ourselves. He knew our, our, our greatest problem we couldn't handle. And so he sent Jesus. Amen? That the king of the universe took on the form of a servant. It's a paradox. He went to the cross. And the cross is an ultimate paradox, right? It seemed that Jesus got defeated on Good Friday. 
Black Friday, Dead Friday, right? It seemed that Jesus didn't deal with our sins. It seems that the kingdom of God didn't really come. But listen, grace made a paradox a reality. And as I said last week, that Jesus wasn't murdered, right? Jesus freely offered his life. Jesus didn't just die, but Jesus rose again. His kingdom did come, and it came through love. So our response to that is faith to embrace our weakness, to embrace the tension of the paradox, to acknowledge our insufficiency, to come before the Lord with open hands, like this posture of surrender, and just to simply receive of his love, of his kindness, of his mercy. Think our our whole journey with Jesus, church, the Christian life is a paradox. Jesus himself said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then he said this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake, right, in the Gospels, he will find it. It's a paradox. So if you spend your whole life trying to find your life, trying to build your identity, trying to create your own purpose, Jesus is saying you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life and you surrender your life to Jesus, if you come to him and say, God, my life is yours, everything I'm about is yours, I'm nothing without you, then Jesus says, you gain everything. You gain everything. And so through faith, we walk through open doors when it's not easy because we know that God's with us. Through faith, we see that captivity to Christ is truly freedom. Through faith, we can represent Christ knowing that it will repel some, but it will draw many. And through faith, we see the cross not as foolishness and weakness, but as power and wisdom. So as a church, let's keep our eyes fixed upon Christ crucified, embracing our weakness so that we might experience his strength. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.